You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I believe that every discussion of entrepreneurship is really a discussion about values. See, when we talk about an idea we have in the context of entrepreneurship, we typically get right into the what's and the how's, what it is, how it will work, what else it might become once the money machine kicks in, and we skip right over the whys. But the whys are so much more important. Because when asked why that idea of ours exists at all, where it came from, or why it's a good one, or why other people should invest in it, our answers don't just check boxes off of a list of practical prerequisites. Our answers say something about how we see the world and how we believe it should change. And that is a matter of values. When you make something, you're making a statement about how the world should be. We shape the world one object, one idea, one word, one thought at a time. And what about time? Time, of course, binds to our values. If not, are there principal muse? Or maybe it's the other way around. Our values activated and carried forward by time. Either way, we co-create with time. Our control or discretion or however we want to sum up our influence over reality increases as we move from past to future. What was, was. We can't change it. It's already happened. We can debate about what was depending upon how solid our facts are. But the one undebatable fact is that we have no power over the past. Similarly, what is, is. We can debate over it, we can interpret present reality in as many ways as our preferences and imaginations allow, and we can try to change it. It's just a little more bendy to the wills of our perceptions and actions. But what will be? Well, what will be is anyone's guess. We can extrapolate from any present thread a future of our own making. Values are what make that happen. The present is compulsory. The future is discretionary. And so today, I want to follow up on last week's episode where we began a discussion of entrepreneurship by resetting that idea, by challenging the story of entrepreneurship. We contrasted the protagonist, the hero CEO, with the reality of who we are. And we contrasted the capitalistic, meritocratic variant of the hero's journey with the meandering serendipity of our lives' paths. But dismantling one story doesn't write ours for us. And so that's where we'll pick up today, with how we begin. By identifying, examining, and ordering our lives so that they may serve as a foundation for the creative and productive lives we may build upon them. You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler. Stay tuned.
Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human, which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show. you've never taken time to document your values, let me say, aside from what I'm about to share, that doing that, actually stopping to reflect upon what matters to you, what you believe to be true at your core, is not a luxury. It's not just a rhetorical question. It's not just a journal prompt. The longer you live, the more necessary it becomes to cross-examine yourself and have some fundamentals to which you hold yourself accountable. They're what will help you when you lose your way. I've done this numerous times, and each time I do it, I push for a deeper root. With every belief I articulate, I'll ask, but why? Or, what is that really about? What I want to share with you today aren't my core values, though. Not broadly speaking, There are eight pieces of value-based advice I have to offer you, the entrepreneurially-minded. Now, they may help you realize your vision, whatever it might be, but they're not going to be about how to be creative or how to have good ideas. I think you've probably got that under control. So number one, this is the shortest and sweetest. Let go of entrepreneurship. Focus simply on having an impact. There's really nothing else to add to that. Number two, learn to perceive opportunity. Everyone loves the life as a story metaphor, myself included. But be careful not to go off the deep end and subscribe to a truly nutty belief like that you are the writer of your own story. A writer imagines a narrative with a start and an end point and then systematically builds a plot that connects the two. We don't do that. We stumble along the path blindly, learning as we go. You can't write a story and experience it for the first time simultaneously. So which is more true of your life? Are you the writer, really, or the protagonist? It makes a difference. When I was offered the job at Newfangled, I could have said to myself, no, mine is an entrepreneur story. The next chapter can't be working for someone else. But my goals, thank goodness, weren't that specific at the time. They were to learn, to survive. I had the desire to be successful, which essentially just meant somehow gaining more influence and money than I had at the time. But I had no specific commitments as to how 
that might be achieved. In other words, it was about perceiving the next opportunity, not necessarily the final one. Now, this doesn't mean having an end game in mind is wrong. It just means that you should realistically have a few end games in mind, but a much more defined next step in place. You need to learn to run scenarios so that you can avoid the bad ones and encounter the good ones without brute force. Think of these as scenarios I can live with versus those that I can't. The bottom line, have a loose agenda for life. It'll make it much easier to have an impact. Number three, experimentation results in being wrong which is exactly why you do it. The thing that most disappoints me about our industry is that nobody really accepts experimentation. It's okay if it's part of a coolness doctrine, a la Google's 20% thing, which, by the way, they've tossed out. But when it comes down to real, deliverable working relationships, experimentation is practically anathema. Now, for a design school graduate, this is terribly disappointing. There is a professional spectrum along which expertise and experimentation lie. The variable that moves along the spectrum from left to right is the problem you're trying to solve. Now, as the problem grows in severity, the necessity of experimentation increases. Simple. Law knows this. Science knows this. Medicine knows this. In those areas, if you have a minor problem like a small claim or the common cold, you're going to get a rather boxed solution. But if you bring a truly severe problem to their office, the first thing out of a doctor or lawyer's mouth will be, well, we can try this. But marketers, well, they haven't gotten the memo. And if you're a designer, you're probably working with or for marketers. So your job is to work experimentation back into the professional vocabulary. Experimentation and confidence are not mutually exclusive. So we've got to be honest when we're trying something. If you say try, with even the slightest apprehension, don't expect to be given the chance. But believe in try, and you will. Number four, be platform agnostic. I've designed for print, interactive media, the web, I've designed systems and processes, I've consulted on all those things. Meanwhile, I keep an eye on all kinds of other things that don't yet impact my work, but probably will. We all sit at the nexus of a variety of cultural, technological, and economic trend lines that will ruthlessly leave us behind if we make the wrong platform commitment. Instead, we need to think of design simply as a discipline of synthesis. Be flexible on the tools and the context. Number five. Resist the container, and even the appearance of the container. It was 18 years before my firm, Newfangled, had a physical space that looked even remotely as beautiful or comfortable or stable as it should have. Not because we didn't want nicer office space, nicer desks, nicer chairs, row after row of perfect, shiny Mac workstations. Of course we did. We're only human. But there was always something else that we judged to be more important, to be more necessary, to be a better use of our time and resources. We never felt like we needed the perfect space to produce the right work. And it's always been about the work. 
Ask my colleagues and they'll tell you about my Amish dad tendencies and the crummy folding chair that I sat in for years rather than buy something nicer. This is not meant to be a humble brag. I am definitely not the only one who made sacrifices on my team. The point is, don't be seduced by those beautiful pictures on Instagram of that latest startup's digs. The truth is, they probably won't last. It's the quiet ones that have their priorities straight. They're off working, probably in some room that doesn't look like much. In other words, don't mistake rewards for goals. Number six, learn to cooperate. The word entrepreneur used to mean someone who took on the full risk for an idea, including its funding. Today's entrepreneurs rarely do this. There's always someone behind the scenes, and their name is probably the one on the checkbook. The unilateral king of the mountain CEO just doesn't really exist. Now, in the last few years, I've had numerous conversations with people who have startup ambitions, big ideas, and they seem to think that there's some magic to making that happen, like some secret recipe that makes it possible for them to do it all by themselves. But I'll usually probe around a bit to figure out what this person's strengths are, and then my first bit of advice is almost always to find a partner. And that's disappointing to most people, which I find strange and maybe even a bit troubling. What is it about collaborating with someone who brings strengths to areas where you are weak That's unappealing. Is it admitting that you have weaknesses? If that's it, then you've got a big problem that will weigh you down for as long as you ignore it. But more on ego in a moment. Where I work, collaboration is essential. My colleagues and I collaborate. That, rather than top-down delegation, is the nature of our org chart. We've got a leadership team of five, and each of us has an aspect of the company that we manage that maps to a unique ability that we bring to the table. I don't do what the other four do best as well as they do. They don't do what I do best as well as I do. In the middle is plenty that we have in common. Plenty of strengths, opinions, and perspectives, but it's the differences that make our collaboration powerful. We'd be fools to think otherwise. It doesn't mean we don't disagree sometimes. It doesn't mean that there aren't tensions. But every success is due to our combined efforts, and we all share the belief that no one of our individual ego-driven impulses is worth putting that at risk. Number seven, get comfortable with uncertainty. You cannot control uncertainty. That's why it's called uncertainty, but... You can control how you feel about it. Comfort can be a byproduct of success, but it's not a great goal in and of itself. In fact, don't underestimate the value of discomfort, of adversity, of uncertainty. These are powerful motivators. If you felt comfortable all the time and certain of everything, there'd be nothing for you to do, would there? And finally... Number eight, know yourself. There's an independent agency run by a man that I really admire. He's one of those rare few that built it slowly from the ground up. But he learned that though he was able to build it on his own, he wasn't going to keep it if he didn't share the responsibility. He's a wise man. In fact, he once wrote something that has really stuck with me. 
He was talking about how he has learned to empower the leadership at his firm, how to let them do their jobs to the best of their ability. He wrote that he does this by making sure he has taken care of his ego at home. If he doesn't have to satisfy his ego by micromanaging things at work, he can get out of the way and let the people he hired do the things he hired them to do. We've all got an ego problem. It's that we have one. The solution is not in denying your ego. It's in taking care of it. If you don't know yourself well, you'll never figure out how to do that. Maybe that means making art at home. Maybe that means exercising. Maybe that means loving your kids. I don't know. That's up to you. But don't expect to sustain success without figuring that out first. But there are also two sides to this ego thing. Taking care of it in this way is about limiting the damage it can do to the people and the things around you that you care about. The things you're building. The people you're building them with. But you've also got to work to keep it from tearing you up on the inside. I think that this should be pretty familiar territory for creative people especially. We are an anxious bunch. We've got terribly high expectations. Those things set us up for disappointment and grief. So my last point, anxiety distorts time. Many of us are either living in the past or the future. And that tends to produce behavior that's the result of regret prevention protocols, of not being truly present with what is true right now and those around us that make it true. So ask yourself, what sort of life do you want to lead? Not have led, but lead. As in, right now. Remember, we are stumbling along the path blindly. Taking satisfaction in the path, not where we imagine the path leads, is far more likely to produce the sort of success that you desire, that you're hoping to look back upon someday. Success is not about a label or even about being a certain kind of person. It's about being you. Truly you. So with that, with whatever you're doing or whatever you aspire to do, I wish you all great success. Well, friends, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating and a review. You know, giving advice is tricky, especially in this format. I don't know each of you well enough to know what you need to hear or how you need to hear it. But there is one thing I do know. You don't need to hear from me advice on how to make things, or how to write a business plan, or how to run a meeting. I know a lot about all those things, but so do many other people, and probably so do you. But if you don't, there's a million good sources out there, and the best ones will be so because that is what they're passionate about. I don't worry too much about there not being enough good ideas out there. I don't worry too much about a lack of skills or about not enough time spent utilizing them. 
If you're listening to this, there are probably a bunch of things you can do that you spend a lot of time doing that would impress anyone. What I worry about is a culture that puts so much value on talent and time, on extracting them from us, their vessels, that sublimates us to little more than fuel, that consumes us because when it has extracted what it needs from us, there's little left to constitute us. I know that anyone who can contribute something to our culture draws from within themselves and does so longer, more effectively, more generously, more beautifully when what is within is a rich, complicated, diverse culture of its own. That's why my advice isn't about equipping you with an eight-step plan from idea to IPO. Instead, it's just eight ideas that will allow you to draft that plan for yourself and know that when you've delivered on it, there will still be a self to enjoy the fruits of its labor. Each of these ideas will free you up to see opportunity, and take risks and create value wherever you are, whatever you're doing. You don't need a specific title to empower you to do those things. You don't need to be the beneficiary of every dollar that comes from doing those things to make them worth doing. That's what it means to be entrepreneurial rather than being an entrepreneur. It's about applying that idea to what you do rather than who you are so that you can bring who you really are to what you do. Thanks for listening. And remember, what we do and think today, and especially in accordance with who we are, can create a better tomorrow. I'll see you then.